to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand, for no mere mortal can resist Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 73, which begins with Savannah being pulled under the sand, and it ends with Screwloose running off into the night. Joining us this week are Jonathan and Tabitha Carlisle from the Princess Bride Minute. Hey. Hello. Thanks for having us. Welcome. We're so glad... That you can join us for this week. <laughs> Me yes. too. Yeah. No. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm already laughing. Yeah. It's good to be here. We've just watched this movie for the first time, I think, two weeks ago. But it's good to follow along with the show and actually know what the movie is now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that's good. <laughs> so before two weeks ago, had you watched any of the Mad Max movies? No, I hadn't. In fact... Mad Max wasn't even on my radar until the newer ones came out, and then I was aware of them, aware of the new ones. But until your podcast, yeah, I wasn't even aware of the Mad Max movie, so this is my first time. Nice. What about you, Jonathan? Yeah, I was aware of them. I had seen Fury Road with a lot of, a lot of people were suggesting it, and well, more than suggesting, a lot of people were raving about it. (laughs) And so I watched it at home one time on a rental, and I was like, oh, that was interesting, but I I didn't know the background. I didn't know the story. If there is a story, you know, I, did, I didn't know. And um, I think we had caught the first Mad Max movie just on TV like a year ago. And we kind of were like halfway through it already. And we're like, oh, this is Mad Max. Okay. And we just kind of had it on in the background. And I think we got to see someone's arm rip off on the car or something. I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. But yeah, this was our first venture into like actually sitting down and fully watching one of these movies. So from this first time watcher's perspective, what did you think of it? I watched it a second time. I like movies like that when you don't know what's going on the first time and you kind of have to have a second watch. But yeah, the second watch was really interesting because like the very first shot of the movie, when it's supposed to be the perspective of the plane coming down, you know, the first time you watch it you have no idea what that is until afterwards and i don't know i really appreciate it the second time and for me i finished the movie and i was like "Mm, that's not really my style of movie (laughs) 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 but then i watched part of it again when jonathan watched it a second time and then picking up with the podcast listening to it. It made me enjoy the movie more, actually, listening to the podcast because I was like, oh, I under- I understand that. I know what's going on. I-, I don't know. It made it more fun, which made me enjoy the movie more, actually. So it's grown on me. The more we've watched it for this, it's growing on me. But I think if I would have watched this when I was growing up, I could see where it would be attached to a memory and I would have enjoyed the movie. I could see me enjoying it growing up if I would have seen it when I was younger. Well, I'm glad to hear that we are (laughs) increasing the quality of the movie for you (laughs) through the podcast. I'm just glad that you <laughs> called that kid Screwloose, so now I know his name, because that was, I guess that was one thing I didn't do, was research everybody's names. Yeah, I was going to tell you that I will probably just call people descriptor names, because besides <laughs> like Max, Boy? and uh, yeah, I, I don't know anybody's names. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think it's about time we start talking about this minute. As strangely sparse as it is, we pick up with Screwloose and the other wanderers that have left the crack in the earth, and they are in dire straits. They are not in a good situation, as multiple people would probably say. And we actually see very close up that Screwloose is losing his grip on the stick he's holding on to. Savannah is sliding headfirst into quicksand. It's just all around bad. Who's the one that's in the sand? Finn McCoo is the one in the sand. The little boy. The little boy, who is Savannah's son. Oh. Oh. Yes, and Savannah is the one who is half in the sand, holding on to uh, Finn McCoo. Wow. Okay. So this really explains a lot because I mean, I, it's impressive. I. It's nice that the older ones would look after the younger ones, but I guess I didn't realize that she was that old. But yeah, I, w- I was impressed that she would just kind of you know, dive into the sand or be pulled into the sand after we're just hoping that someone was going to pull them all back out, I guess. But that makes more sense. If she's the mother, then I get it. Yeah. The actress Helen Boudet, Helen Boudet, whichever pronunciation is correct, I usually say both of them just to cover my bases, infuriate half the listeners, satisfy the other half. But when she was doing this role, she was about 22. And the actor who played Finn McCoo was more or less 10 years old. Okay. But as they were going along, Finn fell into this quicksand, and so Savannah, being his mother and probably the closest one in the group to him, would of course grab onto him as best she could to try and save him, because they're a tribe, they're a family. They work and live and exist as a unit, more or less. We don't know how they fell in the sand, right? I mean, we just kind of come up on them in their peril? Yeah, this experience, this peril we're coming across it in medias res okay so unlike <laughs> the like the horse earlier in the movie the horse was just laying there and then all of a sudden the sand just started swallowing it up so i was just curious if they uh i guess we don't know i guess we don't know if they were like walking down in the pit and it just started sucking him down or or if he kind of fell down the, the hill and kept going i suspect that being a child he may have been running ahead and went down that particular dune first out of the group and that's why he alone was sucked in this just makes it so much sadder knowing that <laughs> he's a child <laughs> Yeah, it really is. And the fact that Savannah is the first one holding on and the one actively sacrificing her life to save him, I think actually is a coincidence. I think any of the others would have done the same thing. Because you're right, they work as a unit, they are a whole. We've chatted before in previous episodes about the family structure of individuals in the tribe. We know that Savannah has a son and we know that Kusha, who is also in this group, who is eight months pregnant, also has another child. And that that's the extent of the families that we know about. We have no information on who the fathers are. Okay. That was going to be one of my questions as we were watching it. Right. We were like, okay, so who's the father's? And these girls right. look so young. <laughs> like, where? There are very few males in this group who appear old enough to be fathers. Yeah. Really, there's kind of really only one. <laughs> we need a post-apocalyptic Maury Povich. <laughs> we need to come right. along, do some paternity tests, and just answer these questions once and for all. Could he rhyme while he does it? <laughs> Whatever makes for the best on-screen titles. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get too deep into the minute, there is like at three seconds, I think, like between three and four seconds, there is one shot 
of Savannah sliding down the sand that is actually filmed in reverse. It's really hard to catch, but and it just kind of looks weird. But if you actually scrub backwards, then you're like, oh, okay, that looks natural. Like the way this, really? the sand is kind of falling around her. Or falling up, I guess. That does not surprise me in the least. I did not notice it. Oh, my gosh. Because I'm not a frame-by-framer like Rick is. And even he didn't notice it the first time around. It, like, it's so, a, it's, it, just, nice it just looks weird. But when, like I said, when you if you can run it backwards, then you go, okay, yep, that's how it sh- that's what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, it's in the shot before Max dives off the top of the dune. His bangerang moment. That's wild looking. Bangerang. <laughs> bangerang. As you mentioned, Savannah is being pulled down towards the bottom of this sand dune. And we talked a lot last week about the qualities of dry quicksand. And we've mentioned this before in other episodes earlier on. I don't want to get back into the science of dry quicksand. But the important thing about it is that it does not pull and it does not suck you in or anything like that. It's more or less... The lightning sand from the dark forest where you just fall into it and then you're gone. Like the fire swamp? That's what it is. Not the dark forest, the fire swamp. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's interesting too. The uh, There's a difference between the movie and the book, The Princess Bride. The movie, they call it lightning sand. And the, the book uh, the book actually mentions lightning sand, but dif- uh, differentiates between lightning sand and snow sand. In the book, it's actually snow sand, which is basically like falling into a cloud of sand. Huh. So again, it's, it still doesn't suck you in, but you just, I mean... Yeah, you just poof, you're gone. So the snow sand, like the cloud of sand, is that like very, very aerated, like fluffy? Yes. Okay, because that's more or less what dry quicksand is. Yeah. Sand that has been aerated and therefore very little structure to support the weight of a person. Mm-hmm. So you fall into the air cavities in between the grains of sand and it just closes in around you. So you just drop in, schwump. And then you're gone Ugh. type of situation. <laughs> what a horrible way to and go. The way that, and the way that Savannah is being pulled in here, it kind of makes me pause and say, well, maybe it's not just a quicksand situation. Because as we observed early in the movie, you brought up the horse got slowly pulled down into the sand. Maybe this isn't a geological situation. This might be a biological situation. Oh, the- I'm assuming everyone here has heard of the antlion. I've heard of the sarlacc. Has pit. anybody heard of the antlion? <laughs> I haven't. So an antlion is this dragonfly looking thing. And during its larval stage, and I think even into adulthood, it will dig these pit traps in sand. And then as ants and termites go through the pit, the antlion will throw sand at the ant or the termites and the termites will roll into the center of the trap and the antlion will eat them, you know, pull them down into it. So that's one example in real nature of something in sand being a massive hazard. But then you've also got the Sarlacc pit, which John, you mentioned (laughs) the whole idea of something (laughs) living in a desert that is a giant hole and sucks people into it. And I mean, we don't see a ton of irradiated creatures in the Mad Max series. It's not something that's part of the lore. Not yet. Anyways, exactly. Just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not there. Right. And we've decided that Fury Road takes place. What only Three years or something like that? Fairly fairly soon after. Yeah, fairly soon after this story. Hmm. And in the opening shot of Fury Road, there is a mutated animal. So if they exist soon after this story, they exist now. Mm-hmm. Well, now I want to see like that, that boy that got sucked in. Now I want to see that he got hit by like some big sandball to the side of the head before he fell in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely lose a lot of details by coming into this situation 
while everyone's forming a human chain and screaming and trying to pull at each other. We're not getting that set up. That would be so useful to have. Am I alone in thinking that if you're watching this scene without any sound, like the visual I thought was pretty striking of when they pull back and all you see is the cloth, you don't see the, you know, the boy hanging there anymore. But if you listen to it, it's still like that playful music. And it's, it's I don't know, it's really weird. I don't find it to be any kind of mournful music. It, it gets mournful later when they're all asleep. I'm not listening to it at the moment, so I don't remember what it sounds like. But maybe not playful, but it's like ascending. It's just like, oh, uh, it's like, no, that's that's not that kind of moment here. Just a uh, just a moment. Yeah, I hear it. It's almost like they've taken the Waiting Ones theme and tried to put a minor key spin on it mm -hmm. so that it's not quite as upbeat, but you've still got this very lively theme that you can slow it down a little bit and you can change the key, but it's still not going to be, like you said, mournful. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of music like when you, like if you were to crest that dune hill and see, you know, electric light shining in the night, you know, like, you, like we see later, then that would make sense to me. Mm -hmm. But... You know, revealing that someone is not coming out of the sand. It, that's that, it's it was confusing to me the first time I watched it because I was like, oh, that's oh, wait, what? That's it's it was striking and then not striking at the same time. Yeah, the, the music leads you to believe that he is going to be on the end of that fabric and that everybody's going to be OK, that Max did come in and save the day. And then there's a letdown. I wonder if they were trying to make that letdown more dramatic by giving you a false sense of security with the music. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, oh, wait, no. Hmm, perhaps. But Finn is definitely gone. There's no bringing him back at this point. Whether or not he's sucked up by the earth or eaten by an irradiated insect living underneath the ground. Oh, it just Frankly, got even sadder. I hope he's been eaten. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I hope he's been eaten by an irradiated <laughs> insect because the alternative is that he is suffocating yes. to death under that sand, which could take a little while and be really <laughs> painful and scary and horrific. Yeah. At that point, it's almost preferable to be slowly digested over the course of a thousand years in the belly of the mighty Sarlacc. Okay. Well, when you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'd much rather be digested over a thousand years than slowly suffocate encased in sand, unable to move. <laughs> like, that's horrifying. I wonder if it would take that long, though. It would probably be like drowning in the way that it probably wouldn't take that long before you'd suffocate and die. It's all really sad, but <laughs> unless he's living in some underground pocket with some kind of sand people under the ground, it's a whole other world. <laughs> The idea of an underground world also came to mind because I was thinking about Westworld and how when the hosts are killed or injured or something, all of the technicians come up from underneath the ground and they take the host bodies back underground to be fixed. And so what if instead of falling into that sand trap type of situation, Finn more or less fell into some sort of large underground cavern, sort of like a Westworld backstage type situation where there are people living there and maybe he's fine. <laughs> yeah, they've got electricity. They've got all the, you know, food for, for all the workers and stuff. And he's like, whoa, what is this? It's like the upside down only... <laughs> better yeah <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> They're normally living in the upside down. Like I'm trying to think of the best possible outcome. Well, you mentioned Westworld and this fictional underground city. There's a real underground city in Turkey that was large enough to house 20,000 people. Wow. I would tell you what it's called, but I would only butcher the name. <laughs> Funny you mentioned that because there are a lot of dugout homes in the Cooperpedia area. In fact, Jedediah's house that we're going to see at the end of this movie is one of those dugout homes. Yeah. I don't know if you'd find one here in the dunes because this was filmed outside of Sydney. But the idea still holds water. Yeah, that him being in an underground kingdom. I'm moving it up to a kingdom now. It's not even just a little house. It makes me feel much better and I'm not so sad. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why Savannah's screaming because like her head was down there. She got a little peek of it and then they pulled her back and she's like, no, no, let me go back. <laughs> I could see Savannah not being able to see past the sand. And so she legitimately thinks that he's gone. Yeah. She gets to have her emotional moment that, honestly, this movie spends zero time on. She's given zero time to grieve. Yeah. But after Finn falls through sand for a little bit, he plops out the other side, and all of these subterranean people walk up, and they're like, ooh, the boy that was promised, the boy who lived, or something like that. And he, he's given a little rock crown, and he's crowned high prince of the undersand people he fulfills the prophecy so yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe it turns out he's got a map on his back oh <laughs> that's even better <laughs> since we love talking about water world so much <laughs> oh yeah that'd be weird like sub subterranean water world we're up top it's all desert Ooh, all the waters down below upside down <laughs> <laughs> if they got a live boy down there, they'd probably be thrilled because last time it was just a dead horse that came flying through. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be disappointing. <laughs> Max was definitely unable to save that dead horse. Not that we want to beat that subject too much, but this time <laughs> around, he is able to leap off the top of the dune, grab Screwloose, and by pulling on Screwloose, he's able to pull Savannah up out of the sand and of course she's crying and upset and whatnot because you know she just lost finn yeah okay i'm happy that his name is screw loose i like that name but i watched this movie twice do they actually where are you getting the names from is it just in documentation <laughs> or do they actually say them in the movie and i just completely miss them no there are instances are there? yeah sometimes they say names like screw loose is said out loud finn is said out loud savannah I believe, mm -hmm. is said out loud. Let me also say that I'm really bad with catching names when I first watch a movie. Oh, me too. We'll point them out, specifically in Wednesday's Minute, where a bunch of the names are mentioned. Oh, okay. I guess with a name like Screwloose, though, like you don't, you know, for your first time, you don't know if that's his name or if that's just someone saying, hey, there's, uh, you know, that's his nickname, basically. Exactly. It could just be a nickname or a insult, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah. I think in this particular tribe, it's kind of one and the same. After all, one of the boys that was chosen to follow Max, his name is Tubba. <laughs> and he is a bit heavy set. So there's not a lot of subtlety. He's the one that went out into the desert with him that had to carry the water. Yes. Yeah. Got it. We're learning. One interesting detail I noticed when Max is pulling Screwloose up by the arm, you can see that Sally Ann, the monkey, is hanging out with Screwloose oh, yeah. and is actually tied to a piece of Screwloose's outfit. So that way she'd stay put. Uh -huh. Is that for the movie? So the monkey will stay there? Yeah. From time to time, you can see the control line. <laughs> 
that they used on Sally Ann to keep her in place. Yeah, there are a few behind the scenes stories of Sally Ann delighting in not doing what she's told. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just thought of something. The waiting ones like to call Sally Ann co-pilot because they see her as Max's co-pilot in the whole Captain Walker thing. Should we be calling Sally Ann co-pilot? Oh my goodness. I feel like I didn't even watch this movie. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> But I like it. I'm going to have to watch it again and and like, oh, yeah, co-pilot. I like that. But seriously, should we be calling her co-pilot instead of Sally Ann? I think so, because the kids have named her. Which is more than Max ever did. Right. I mean, we call Sally Ann Sally Ann because that's the actor's name. So we just use that name. But the kids have given the character a name. So I guess we should call her co-pilot. Okay. I'll do a find and replace in my notes in the future. So that way, all the instances where it says Sally Ann, I'll just replace it with co-pilot. And we'll all know what I'm talking about. So if Max gets his vehicle back, will he get a bumper sticker that says Sally Ann is my (laughs) co-pilot? Absolutely. I love it. (laughs) I wouldn't mind a t-shirt that says Sally Ann is my co-pilot. Oh, we'll put that on the short list for t-shirt ideas. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) So does co-pilot have nails? Because that would (laughs) hurt on the chest there as you're being pulled up. So I'm guessing no, then. I'm hoping she has little monkey manicures to keep those (laughs) nails short. My guess is, yeah, exactly, like a little monkey manicure, because she is a professional actor, so, yeah. (laughs) Not just a professional actor, but also a bit of a diva. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) So right around 20 seconds into this minute, Savannah is pulled up to the top of the dune, and we more or less got everybody all in one group. And as we pull out on this shot, if you look over to the right of the screen, you can see Anna Goanna and Eddie, and they are dragging something towards the rest of the group. Now, all of our listeners will be tired of us saying this, but originally there was a storyline involving Gecko, the kid with the headset and the radio equipment strapped to his chest where he was found before this point and they made a little stretcher for him and they were dragging him along. So that shot of Anna and Eddie off to the side, they're dragging Gecko. Oh. And it's another instance of him showing up, even though that storyline, story detail was cut. Hmm. You know what? As many times as I watched this minute over and over again for this, I never noticed them off to the side coming in. I was so focused on the group, you know, there that I never noticed them coming in the corner until you just met it, uh, mentioned it. I think that's totally justified because we have just witnessed Savannah go under the sand and be pulled out again. And it's a very harrowing moment for her. And so we're focused on her in this instance as she's wailing with grief at the fact that when she came up out of the ground again, she was empty-handed. And even though we get this moment of her wailing and the others gathering around her, that we are paying attention to that group so much so that we miss the other group. That being said, she does not get the opportunity to mourn that Mm -hmm. she deserves. It's seven seconds. Between the beginning of that shot and the fade to black screen, it's seven seconds. And she is with somebody who has been in the exact same position she has been, who has been right there trying to prevent the death of his child and was not able to save him. So it would have been really nice and a nice little character development 
development moment if Max had said something to her. Had, and you know, as I'm saying this out loud, I realize that just isn't Max. Max is never going to use his own life experiences to comfort somebody else. Yeah, Max wouldn't walk over to Savannah, clap her on the shoulder and be like, it's okay. The first one's always the hardest one. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> That's sad. But it would have been more Max's style, maybe with a look or a gesture, something quiet, something subtle to make some kind of connection with her. Oh, I could see Max walking over to Savannah and just kind of putting a hand on her somehow, like maybe like on the shoulder or like on the top of her back or something like that. And she like collapses into him because she's not in the habit of losing kids, whether that's Finn her own or any member of the tribe. She takes responsibility for these people. And so this is a new sensation for her. So Max could be approaching her to give support or comfort in his very distant way. And her more or less taking that small gesture and escalating it to a level that she needs to vent these emotions. And Max would just be left there with his hands out like, um, okay. <laughs> Maybe like pat her on the head or something like that. Or he just fires a warning shot that's even further away. You know, when she turns around, he just gives her a comforting nod like, it's all right. That's all you get. But yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't even get to stop moving. She's still fighting for her life, you know, to scramble to the top of the hill. And then we just fade out. Like she doesn't even get that, like the, the moment to lay back in the sand and just cry about it. This whole episode of Max saving the kids, pulling them out, well, saving most of the kids, but you get what I was trying to say. <laughs> Ouch. All takes place within the first 30 seconds of this minute. All this time we've been talking, mm -hmm. just 30 seconds. Because the second 30 seconds of this minute is a shot of the moon because it's nighttime and all of them laying on the side of a dune and Screwloose gets up and scurries off. And that's all the second half of this minute is. It's very dark. Do you feel like this brings the movie to a screeching halt again? <laughs> the plot has been moving forward at a pretty good clip for a little while. There's some slow moments mixed in there and we've had this mini climax of losing Finn and then everything stops and it's nighttime and everybody's sleeping. It's a little jarring to me. Like we're missing a scene? Yeah, like we're missing a scene. Yeah. Jonathan Tabitha, what do you think? Um... I like it. I don't know. I, I like quiet moments. Uh, anybody watching my Facebook knows that I saw A Quiet Place a million times in the theater. And so I, I, I guess it's the audience's time to grieve when mm -hmm. Savannah doesn't really get that time. But uh, actually, when this shot came up, the first time I saw it, I was sitting back on my couch watching it on my TV. So I wasn't like right up on it. And when the, the moon fades out and you see everybody sleeping on the side of the hill and it's dark, I didn't know what I was looking at. It kind of looked like... It was like a wispy Japanese painting or something. Like, I'm like, what is that? And then, uh, and then when I didn't know his name at the time, but when Screwloose starts moving, I was like, oh, oh, that's the people. <laughs> but it's an interesting shot. Yeah. So Screwloose seems to have a Screwloose. Yeah. Did I say Screwloose? <laughs> no, he seems to have a Screwloose. Oh, he seems to have a Screwloose. Got it. <laughs> He seems to be on a mission, like everybody's sleeping, and then he's up and he's not just moseying to the top of the hill, it's kind of like he had a purpose. Yeah. So, I guess 
It could be like a missed story. Did he hear something? He, I don't know. That was my question. Just kind of what caused him to go up there and to the top of the hill and look. Screwloose has always been just a little different from the rest of the kids. And he seems to interact with or perceive the world in a different way from the others. So you can only imagine that he either heard something or noticed it out of the corner of his eye. Somehow he was woken up and stirred to action in this case to leave the others and scramble up the side of the hill there and the only one that seems to notice at first is Anna Goanna because she was laying right next to him and so in him getting up she was roused as well so in the next minute we can talk about like what they see Mm -hmm. but because he wakes up or because he gets up yeah like I wonder we've seen earlier in the movie that there's a lot of clanging or Right. I mean, do we understand that the, the music is diegetic or some of it is, that, that they're actually clanging in, in Barter Town? Do they have a band? We like to think that there's a Barter Town band <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Up here in northern Michigan where we're at, you know, when wintertime comes and the air is dry and crisp and clear, like sound travels like crazy. But I don't know how that works in the desert. Does that work the same with sand versus snow? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. But that is a very good question. (laughs) So going back to sand, when they're going through the whole scene of they're chained down the sand dunes there and the sand is blowing all around, that would be a really interesting thing to film because everybody's literally getting sand in their face, right? Yeah. Like you're filming this out with sand blowing around and in your eyes and... Yeah, and with George Miller, it wouldn't be an after effect. There would literally be sand blowing in your actors' faces. (laughs) Yeah, that would be rough. I think this (laughs) is one of those cases where we think the movie business is something glamorous. And life on set is anything but. Like it's really hard and it's hot and it's cold and it's dirty and you get sand in your face. It's not glamorous at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that's hot true. and it's cold. It's yes and it's no. It's in and it's out. It's up and it's down. It's wrong when it's right. It's black when it's white. It's just they fight. They break up. They kiss. They. Uh, I don't want. What's the? I don't you remember the rest it. of the. I had most of the the verse or the chorus. <laughs> oh, yeah. we're all cheering for you. That's all right. Have you guys been to the sand dunes before? Do you have sand dunes near you? I'm really glad you asked that because I've been thinking about our relationship to sand dunes. Now, Rick doesn't like sand. Not a big fan. No. Coarse and rough and irritating. I do. I love sand. I love the beach. I grew up near the beach. We live now near the beach. Dunes near us, you're not allowed to walk on them. If you walk on them, you're going to destroy them and then they'll be gone. Yeah. So I always got yelled at for walking on dunes. The only only exposure I've ever had to dunes were actually dunes in the wintertime. When I was going to school out in Idaho, there are dunes i'd say half an hour 45 minutes north of the campus where i was staying and it was winter time so they were all covered in snow and in the winter time when you get these giant dunes they make excellent sledding hills yeah and you know i did one run where i rocketed down this hill i hit a lull and flew through the air and i fell through the middle of the inner tube i was using and it hurt <laughs> <laughs> luckily the entire ground was a cold compress so i just got to sit there for a while nice <laughs> We have a lot of sand dunes in Michigan along the lake shore. And so about an hour or maybe an hour and a half from where we live is the Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lake Shore. And they're huge. We take the kids there for field trips, you know, with the school. And, and it takes a lot to climb up the sand dunes. So to see them scurrying over and running through the sand, that just 
it takes so much effort and they probably had to do it over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Watching people run on sand makes me tired because it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I get tired running along the beach in sand. Yeah. You know, you watch that in movies, people running down the beach. And I'm just like, that, that's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of this minute. Before we go, though, Jonathan and Tabitha, if there is anywhere that you would like to point our listeners on the internet to have them go check out, where should people go? They should go to theprincessbrideminute.com. And we've covered that whole movie. We got 99 episodes covering the movie. I think there's like one or two bonus episodes there. Uh, But yeah, they can listen to from beginning to end. And the best thing about it is that I don't have to do any more work for them to do that. (laughs) It's already there. Nice. It's very bingeable. Mm-hmm. I remember listening to it when it was in its first run. It's very enjoyable because, I mean, who hasn't seen that movie? A lot of people have seen it, but not many people saw it in the theater. We found that out for sure. <laughs> As for our minutes, we are going to come back on Wednesday. Screwloose is going to come back and lead the rest of the group to the top of a dune. I don't know if it's this dune specifically, but it's a dune where they will spy the distant lights of Bartertown, which gives Max an idea of what they can do next. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 73 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody